Awesome. Thank you, worship team. Man, glory, glory, hallelujah. Jesus, you are good. I love those words. I love singing those words. Worship is so important that we do that uh, when we gather together, and it's just every time my heart is softened. So um, love it. Thank you, worship team. Good morning. Yeah, there we go. We had one very enthusiastic good morning in first service, but you guys did great. Um, I have a, a couple of announcements for us before we kick off this morning. The first is that uh, Band of Brothers, which is our men's like monthly dinner, fellowship hangout, we have some teaching. It's an awesome time. Uh, that's happening on July 25th, so it's a Monday night. And uh, Band of Brothers is great. We get to hear um, stories of courage and how God is calling us as guys to, to be courageous in our faith. And we get to eat a meal together and hang out. It's just an awesome time. My favorite part um, of Band of Brothers every time is always just the conversations that happen uh, at the tables when we're sitting, uh, enjoying food together. It's an awesome, awesome thing. So Band of Brothers, July 25th. And then uh, on July 29th, which is the, I believe it's the following Friday after that, uh, we have a kids game night. And kids game night is for uh, all the kids... I was homeschooled. I don't know grades. Was it like second through fifth, something like that? I don't know. Whatever kids would normally be down in like kids' church and stuff. Um, <laughs> it's a kids' gaming night for them. We're going to have video games. We're going to have board games. There's even going to be Foursquare. I heavily advocated against having any sort of ball or sports-related anything there. I'm like, this is a video game night. No sports. No sports balls. But the kids love Foursquare, so there's going to be Foursquare there anyways. Uh, they usually end up playing Foursquare the whole time, and I play video games by myself. So, um, no, that's not true. We have a great time. Uh, so the kids' game night, that's going to be on July 29th. Um, don't want to miss that. And then last but not least is our picnic. It's picnic Sunday, the first picnic. What beautiful weather we have for this picnic. It's going to be awesome. Uh, just a chill, relaxing time, hanging out, eating some food together. So uh, if you're going to run home after this before the picnic, make sure to grab some neighbors, strap them to the top of your car and bring them with you uh, back to the picnic. It's going to be awesome. Um, that's going to be going on right after third service this morning. So hope to see you there. Um, awesome. Well, if you don't know who I am, my name is Brent. I am one of the pastors here at MRCC. Um, if you do, do know me a little bit, know a little bit about me, that is awesome. If you don't, I'm going to share just a bit. Uh, every time I've preached, which has just been a handful of times, I've shared a little bit about myself, and it's just going to maybe slowly get less and less until I feel like I'm just repeating myself all the time. But I'll share a little bit about myself. Um, I did not grow up in church. I knew who Jesus was, but just more as like, oh, I know who Jesus is because I've read the stories, right? So I uh, got invited to youth ministry here at MRCC by a friend and uh, attended. It was kind of the kid just chilling in the back. I had my hoodie up. I was like, this is cool. I love watching this from a distance. I was like an observer. It was like a Discovery Channel show for me at first. I was like, this is what they do here. Very interesting. I expected David Attenborough to start narrating everything that was going on. Uh, but that was where I was comfortable for a while. And I am a very... I'm typically a very slow burner when it comes to, to accepting or coming to terms with anything, learning new stuff. I like to take my time and really dive into things. And God is so faithful to meet us where we are, amen, because that's where he met me was in um, that time. And, and he just was so faithful and slowly but surely drawing me closer to him. And um, I started running the soundboard. One of the things that really stuck out to me about uh, culture, about youth here at MRCC was that the leaders really seem to care about me. And that was something that I didn't really expect. I was like, well, they don't know who I am. Why do they have to care about me? Um, but they did. They wanted to get to know me. They wanted to spend time with me. 
And that was what originally drew me in. And then they asked me to start running sound uh, for the worship team. And I was like, that's great. It's some buttons and lights. I'm already a techie guy, so buttons and lights make me happy. So I was like, sound is awesome. I'm content to do this until I die. This is great. And then the worst thing imaginable happened, and that's that somehow it got leaked to the youth pastor that I played piano. And I was like, this is the one thing I didn't want anyone to know, right? I was like, I don't want to be up there on the stage. I want to be back there running the soundboard with all the pretty lights and colors. And, uh, but they found out I played piano, coaxed me into joining the worship team. I was reluctant at first, but soon discovered that it was, uh, it was awesome. And it was something that became very near and dear to my heart and still is to this day. I love uh, playing on the worship team. You might have seen me up here every now and again. Um, that was really where Jesus began to speak to me, began to draw me closer to him was as I was on the worship team learning more about, um, you know, I knew kind of who Jesus was, but I didn't, what I didn't know was what he had done for me exactly, like what specifically he had done for me. And uh, he started to teach me that. And I remember one, uh, very vividly one evening after uh, culture, I was driving home and I, I'd always kind of struggled with this sense that I, I didn't really know what purpose there was to anything. I didn't really know what the meaning of life was. I didn't really, I just didn't get it. And I, so I kind of just had this apathetic attitude towards everything. And I didn't really know what the point was. And Jesus met me in that. And in my car, driving home uh, on a Wednesday evening, uh, Jesus spoke to me and said, hey, I am it. That thing you've been looking for, it's me. And I was like, whoa, that's like this, this peace all of a sudden hit me, and it was like nothing else I've experienced before, and I felt like, man, this is the truth. This is the answer. This is what I've been searching for. This is the meaning that I so desperately felt like was lacking before, and that was when I gave my heart to Jesus and was like, all right, let's do this thing. Um, I don't really know all the parts yet, but I will figure that out as I go, and um, that was the case. I became a leader uh, in youth ministry and uh, continued playing on the worship team, started playing on Sunday mornings. And then after a little while, uh, I decided that it would be awesome to do an internship at the church. I really felt like God had a calling. Um, he was calling me to teach. And I didn't know exactly what that looked like, but I knew I wanted to do it. So started a part-time internship at the church, and that eventually turned into a full-time position helping Pastor Josh, our youth pastor, um, as sort of the assistant youth pastor. And that was awesome. I loved doing all that stuff, planning camps. Uh, the first winter camp that Pastor Josh and I did was like one of my fondest memories of all time. It was amazing. I yelled at a bunch of kids. It was great. Um, <laughs> but uh, I loved doing that. And then as of the last year and a half, I actually have moved uh, and shifted out of youth ministry into being sort of our group's pastor. And that comes with a bunch of other hats as well. Uh, among my favorite is that I now am um, <clears throat> hosting and teaching our WordWorks, uh, which is our uh, Thursday night Bible study that we do. Pastor Greg used to teach it, but then that was one of the things that he said, hey, I'd love for you to start doing this. And that has quickly become very near and dear to my heart is one of the things I love doing. We are taking a break for the summer, but WordWorks will be back. Shameless plug, WordWorks will be back in September. Uh, I'll talk your ear off about it when we get a little closer to it, but I love doing that. It's an awesome time just to study his word and to be reminded of things, and that's kind of what our message is doing this morning. That's why I felt like God had laid on my heart for us this morning was just to remind us of something that we probably already know, but is so, so important for us to just internalize, to continually refresh and remind ourselves of. 
So now you know a little bit about who I am, which is great. If you already knew that, I'm sorry you had to listen to it all again. If you did already know that, I'll give you a couple of new things, just so that you don't feel left out. Uh, just some little tidbits that have happened to me recently. The first is I've started uh, working out again. It's been two weeks, and I think it's going great. Um, <laughs> two weeks is I, I haven't accomplished as much as I thought I would. I imagined that just by carrying the key fob in my pocket, it would suck everything away and make me more fit. That's not how it works. Unfortunately, I was duped. Uh, you actually have to go and work out. Man, they got me. Um, but that's been a lot of fun. The other thing is I, uh, I've sustained some injuries. I don't know if you can notice. I would love to tell you that this scratch was given to me by a Wolverine, not the animal, the superhero. Um, but that's not the case. I actually, Pastor Weston has a, a, an electric scooter that he acquired recently. You may know where this is going already, probably. Um, I succumbed to the desire to scoot myself. And <laughs> I tried to scooter out, and I was like, man, this actually isn't, they, they like, you can rent the scooters. It's actually a really cool, cool thing that they do. So I was like, I'm gonna rent one, why not? You know, maybe I will scoot to the gym where I can work out. This was like, I was putting all the pieces together. I'm like, this is gonna be great. Got the scooter, and uh, the second day that I had it, I was taking it to the church. It's an electric scooter. It does have a motor, uh, uh, two motors actually, and it has two wheels. So technically, this was a two-motor vehicular accident. And that's what I tell people to make it sound much less dumb than I crashed an electric scooter. And I just crashed it on the road, hit the asphalt, was wearing a t-shirt and shorts, not very smart on my part. So sustained some injuries. They're healing up nicely, though. And the third thing is I weed-whacked all the tall grass in my lawn recently, and so if I sound a little hoarse this morning, it's because the Claritin in my body is currently experiencing an Alamo of sorts, trying to battle with all of the grass that is inside me. So I may sneeze, I may cough, it's not gonna be pretty. The front couple rows are the splash zone, I don't know if you know that, so I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding. But there's some new tidbits there. Those of you who know me now have a little bit of new context, so you don't feel left out. But let's jump into it this morning. Growing up, my family, uh, we were homeschooled as kids, my sister and I, and one of the things that my parents were really concerned with and, and making sure that they taught us was, uh, you know, character traits, how to um, develop these good character traits to become morally sound people, members of society, right? And it's weird the things you remember from when you were like a kid. You'll just have like these vivid memories of very specific things. One of the specific things I remember is when we were really little, Part of that, the character study, that, those character traits, part of our lesson was these workbooks that related different character traits to animals and just sort of taught based off of, of you know, animals and their sort of natural traits that they have. So the, the character trait of, of attentiveness, of being attentive and aware of your surroundings, right? I remember vividly that the animal that represented that in our lesson was the deer, right? Because a deer, you know, you, you'll like look at a deer out a window from 500 feet away be like, oh, look, a deer. And then you'll go, like, move an inch to go, like, grab someone to look at the deer, and the deer's like, what was that? You know, they're just so ridiculously attentive. They hear everything, and then they run away, and you're like, well, there was a deer, but now it's gone. Um, so deer was sort of the, this animal that represented attentiveness. I believe there was patience, and that was, of course, the tortoise, the poor tortoise, uh, always stereotyped into being slow and patient about things. But... Um, they were really concerned, my parents were, with making sure that we learned these character traits. So much so <clears throat> that it kind of became a joke in our household that when anything bad or unfortunate would happen, 
it wasn't that something bad had happened. It was an opportunity for us to build character. And, of course, looking back now, I can see that, like, okay, a lot of that was correct. But when you're a kid and they're like, hey, shoveling all the snow out of the driveway builds character, you're like, what? That's something parents make up. That is false, and I'm calling you out on it. Um, anytime you would, like, you sprain your ankle, it's like, oh, that builds character. And drop your ice cream on the floor, builds character. Not having ice cream somehow builds character. So every day you go without ice cream, just know that you're doing something special for yourself. Um, and so on and so forth, right? Uh, if you get a flat tire on the way to the amusement park, well, waiting longer to have fun builds character. It's like, no, it doesn't. I was a kid. I was, I was not into that. But looking back in hindsight, I can see how, how it was true. And, you know, as much as I joke about it now, there is something to be said for how encountering and making it through something difficult can change us. It works in a worldly sense for sure, but I think more importantly, God wants to show us that it works in our spiritual growth as well. It works inside us at a deeper level than just the surface. So uh, turn your Bibles this morning to Acts chapter 9. That's where we're going to be. As today, we're going to sort of take a look at the early church and see how God was using difficult times to grow his people then. Uh, and how we can relate it to today. So we'll get there in just a moment. Uh, another thing I loved to do as a kid was I loved to read books. I don't know, where are my book readers at? Raise your hand if you're a book reader. I, man, I don't read nearly as much as I should nowadays. I feel like uh, you know, anytime I'm like, I should go read this book. I'm always like, but there's other stuff to do. When I was a kid, we didn't really have video games. We didn't you know, like, we were homeschooled, so it wasn't like we were always, like, hanging out with tons of friends. I had friends, <laughs> all right? I had friends. I don't want you to get the wrong idea. But we weren't just, like, surrounded by throngs of friends. So I kept myself busy by reading all the time when I was a kid. And my parents were responsible enough that they didn't really let us get everything we wanted, like a toy or whatever. Um, if it was something we didn't need, they would exercise restraint and just try to be, you know, responsible parents in that sense. But I remember any time my sister and I wanted to get a book, the answer was always yes. My parents really wanted to encourage us becoming readers. And that definitely happened because we both just read books like crazy. I loved uh, adventure stories. Uh, I loved, when I was younger, I loved reading like the Magic Treehouse books were super cool um, then I got a little older, I started reading The Hobbit, I loved The Lord of the Rings, uh, Chronicles of Narnia, Harry Potter, don't judge me, I was not, I did not grow up in church, don't judge me. Um, <laughs> I loved Harry Potter, I uh, loved reading the books, in fact, uh, I loved, my sister and I both loved reading those books so much that when the very last book came out, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows, I remember that it was like in, just sold like hotcakes, Right? And my sister was the only one of us that got a copy. And I was so mad because she's like, well, it's my copy. You can't read it. And so I had to sit there knowing that she was knowing all these juicy details about how everything was ending. And I didn't get to experience any of it. So I'd actually wait till she was asleep. And I would sneak into her room, steal her book at night. And then I'd read till like 3 in the morning. (laughs) And I did that for a little while until I eventually got my own book um, copy and was able to finish it. But I loved reading when I was a kid. I'm pretty sure she found out and was just like, oh, well, if I'm not reading it, it's not that big a deal. It was more just like the principle of the thing. She wanted me to know that it was her book. But one of the things that crops up a lot in stories when you read, maybe you've noticed this before, maybe you're familiar with it, but it's a, a trope or sort of a structure of storytelling. And it happens all the time, especially in like adventure stories that we tell. And I'm a firm believer that I think most 
media and stories that we can see um, can be linked in some way to how God designed us, right? There's so many things that appear in the stories that, that we tell, um, secular and otherwise, that just come from the way that God designed us. And I love sort of finding those little points and moments. <clears throat> Sorry, there's the, the Claritin's not doing a good enough job. Um, but one of the structures that crops up all the time is called the hero's journey. And it's sort of a, uh, an outline for telling stories, if you will. And it happens uh, so frequently in literature and in storytelling that it is often referred to as the monomyth, meaning like the singular core sort of story that, that things are based off of. And usually they're not like one-to-one -one exact, but so many of these little uh, moments in the hero's journey you can see in, in all the stories that we love. I would be remiss if I did not mention Star Wars at least once in my sermon, so I will bring it up now. Uh, Star Wars is a classic example of the hero's journey. So you have, in the hero's journey, you have sort of the starting point where you have the hero who's reluctant, right? They're, they're like, they have their norm, and it's Luke Skywalker on the, on the farm on Tatooine, right? And he's, he's just a farm boy doing his thing, doing chores for Uncle Owen, and uh, he doesn't, his life isn't really changing. He's just experiencing things the way they are. And then in the hero's journey, there's a point called the, the refusing the call. And it's where something happens that sort of is an opportunity for the hero to, to jump into the adventure. And that happens, right, when, when Luke talks to Obi-Wan and he says, hey, you know, you need to learn the ways of the Force. And Luke's like, nah, I can't do that. I have chores. Um, first of all, Luke's dumb. Uh, second of all, I'd be like, learn the Force? Can that help me do my chores? Sold. Um, but he refuses the call, right? That's a key point of the hero's journey is refusing the call, then accepting, right? This sort of circumstances happen where Luke then realizes that he needs to go do this. He needs to fight the evil empire. He needs to, to save people and join the rebellion. So he accepts the call. There's such points in the hero's journey as um, meeting up with the mentor, Obi-Wan in this case, but you also have mentors across literature. You have like Gandalf from Lord of the Rings, Aslan from the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe and the Chronicles of Narnia series. These mentor figures are a critical sort of point in the hero's journey. But the section of the, that structure that is useful to us this morning uh, in terms of, of focusing on is a, a period where the hero has answered the call and they receive um, some, they meet the mentor, they receive some training or knowledge, and then they have to go and face these trials. And it, the, the section is called Trials and Testing. And the hero goes through these trials and testing, and then on the other side of those trials and testing, it leads to the reward. And the reward doesn't necessarily have to be material. It doesn't mean that it's like monetary or anything like that. The reward could be anything as simple as just uh, changing. They change for the better themselves. It's something different about them, or they're somehow blessed with something or, or given something, or they reach this point where they're now different than they were before because of these testing and the trials that they went through. So the hero's journey, I think it's so central in our storytelling. I think it exists so much because God designed us with a deep-set understanding that perseverance through difficult times changes us in ways that we could never experience otherwise. And that's what we're going to read about a little bit in Acts. So let's turn to Acts chapter 9. And while we do that, I'm going to give a little bit of context on what we're reading. So in Acts, the early church has been established, and it's growing. Acts 2, 
uh, chapter 2 tells us that the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So God is being faithful to grow his church as it's being developed. Uh, there are People are being filled with the Spirit. The apostles are, are teaching and, and preaching Jesus. Uh, deacons are being elected. Things are going pretty swell for the church. It's growing. Um, Acts chapter 4 says that the believers all gathered together and shared their possessions so that nobody uh, was, was left wanting for anything. The church is coming together. It is growing by the grace of God. And there are a few uh, attempts to sort of stifle the effectiveness of the apostles and, and of the church by the religious leaders uh, who were sort of scared and, and afraid and unsure about all this. And so they want to sort of silence the church and keep this down. And so there's a few attempts to like accuse them or you know, give them a little smack on the wrist or uh, even imprison them, a little bit of light imprisonment, if you will. Uh, but these attempts are either met with just, they, they're not, um, they don't follow through or in the moments where it's needed, God intervenes and ensures that uh, his church can continue growing and the apostles can continue teaching and preaching. So things seem to be going pretty well, but God wants something bigger and better for the church and for its people. And that usually means that the church is going to be shaken up somehow. And this shift occurs in Acts in the form of increased persecution by the religious authorities. So where there were lukewarm attempts before, now things became much more direct. Um, where there were light, you know, uh, words exchanged, now there are lashings given. There's more imprisonment with, they think, more guards as they answer. They're like, well, God could get them away from two guards, but let's put 14 in there. God can't beat 14 guards. So they're just trying all this stuff. The persecution is reaching this crest moment where then uh, Stephen, who's one of the deacons, first deacons of the church, is stoned to death uh, for preaching about Jesus. And it tells us, uh, the scripture tells us that uh, Saul, chiefest of the Christian hunters, was watching with approval as Stephen was stoned. So there's, this persecution has ramped up big time. And with that, the church scatters in an attempt to, to flee from this persecution. The church is scattered throughout the land. And immediately, the reaction is like, oh, the church is scattered, like that's no good. But God is working in this as well. God is using this to grow his church. I think about a dandelion. Dandelions are the bane of my existence. Um, they grow up all over my lawn, and you think like when you have the, the puffy ones, not the yellow, when they're yellow, but when they're poofy, you get the dandelion, you blow on it, and you blow all the seeds away, and you're like, take that dandelion. But what you've unintentionally done, if you know, you're know you not aware, is you've just caused that dandelion to become 100 dandelions <laughs> all over your yard. And so in the same way, right, what seems like it might be blown and scattered and dead and gone now is simply being planted elsewhere. And that's what's happening as the church is scattered. So at that time, Saul was seen by the church as public enemy number one, right? And I mean, who can blame them at this point? He's actively hunting them. Um, he is, has the full weight and approval of these religious authorities behind him. If I knew that there were a government-sponsored serial killer in Enumclaw who was targeting video game nerds, I would be a little freaked out. <laughs> I would probably sell all of my gaming stuff to someone I don't like very much, and then I would join a sports team. Um, that's what I would do. I'd be like, no games here. 
Um, I don't know. But that's probably, like, I, I get it. They're afraid of Saul. He is, he is hunting them. And this makes what happens in Acts chapter 9 all the more shocking and beautiful when we realize this, that Saul is the chiefest of the, the Christian hunters. So Acts chapter 9, starting with verse 1, let's go ahead and read together. It says this, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, referring to the Christian church, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. We'll get back to that in a little bit. That's going to be important. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. And so at this point, it seems like Saul has been removed as a threat to the church, right? It's like, okay, he's blind, so he can't really do that much while he's blind. Um, so he's sort of taken out, and it's like, okay, that's, that's good news. Like, the main bad guy is now out of the picture. But God doesn't stop there. Simply removing Saul from the picture is not God's heart. God would see Saul's beautiful gift of zeal redirected and used instead for the proclaiming of Jesus' name. Let's go ahead and read on. Starting with verse 10, it says, In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision. Ananias! Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with the authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. Ananias here at least doing his due diligence and reminding God. It's like, did you get the names mixed up? Because Saul, that's ringing a bell, that's bad news. God, are you sure? You know, it's like, I just want you to be informed, God. Make an informed decision, as if God didn't already know exactly what he was doing. But to his credit, uh, it says, but the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. To Ananias' credit, he then goes, right? He doesn't need to be told three times like Peter always does, right? He gets it on the first one. He gives God the gentle reminder of like, just so you know who Saul is, so we're all good. Um, God says, I'm sure this man is my chosen instrument. So uh, Ananias, although hesitant, uh, he goes and does what God had told him to do. He goes to, to Saul. There's a worship song and the lyrics sing, uh, you turned my morning into dancing. You give me beauty for ashes, beauty for ashes. And, and just the, that line there, you give me beauty for ashes. It's exactly what God is doing for his church and for his people. And he's still doing it today for us. The church was scattered, and, and it might have looked like to everyone who was in that at the moment, right, all these different members of the church, it might look like things had fragmented, things were falling apart, the church was petering out, it was scattered. But 
they're unable to see from the ashes what God was doing, right, in that moment. It's easy to look back in hindsight and say, like, oh, yeah, the church was, like, the church is scattered, which is ultimately good for the church. And, but in the moment, they're just thinking that, like, things are rough. We have certainly experienced something of a shakeup in the capital C church over the past few years. I mean, by that, I mean churches everywhere, right? Um, and one of the things that, that we as a staff at MRCC were certain of uh, and still are is that God, we knew God was going to be faithful to grow and bless his people in the midst of all of the lockdowns um, while we were trying to figure out different solutions to reach people. I fondly remember Pastor Josh and I uh, jumped in a car, ordered like 30 McDonald's cheeseburgers, and we were driving by kids' houses and social distancing and just chucking cheeseburgers at their front doors. Like, have a cheeseburger! Um, we got very creative with some of the fun stuff we tried to do uh, without being able to, to come together. But we were certain that God was still blessing his people, that he was growing us in that time. And he was, and he still is, faithfully using this sort of shift that happened during COVID. We're not, we're not seeing the end of it just yet. God is still working in the midst of all of this. There are so many people who faithfully watch our online show. If you're part of us who are joining online, thank you so much. Um, we are so thrilled that we're able to be an us that aren't just in this room, right? That we're, are everywhere that we reach through these different screens. Uh, there are also so many testimonies of those of you that have had started attending online and watching and then wanted to get more connected. It came in person. God is doing amazing things and he's glorified in all of that. God shakes up his church and especially in hindsight, we can look back and see how some change or trial helped to grow the church. But that change starts first and foremost in individual hearts, right? Our God is a deeply personal God. And as such, he experiences so much joy when hearts are changed on an individual level. God seeks to use our struggles to bring us closer to him and to grow our faith individually. Look at what happens to Saul, right? So <laughs> after God tells Ananias to go talk to him, he does. And he tells Saul that Jesus sent him so that Saul could be filled with the Holy Spirit and see again. And he is. It says something like scales fell from his eyes and, and Saul's able to see after being blind for three days. And he spent those several days being blind and, and I'm sure that that allowed, it doesn't go into detail, but I'm sure that that allowed for a lot of reflection on Saul's part, right? There has to be a certain amount of humility and change that happens when you go from being a confident, uh, zealous proud man to being blind for three days. He had to rely on other people for something as simple probably as just finding where the door was to get into a building um, or to find the restroom or whatever. Like these things that were so simple before now required help from people. Uh, you might have seen like some of these would you rather games that have gone around, whether it's like an app on the phone or something that you just play in the car on a long road trip. But one of the questions that usually always comes up is like, would you rather be blind or deaf if you had to choose one for the rest of your life? And like now in the moment, I would pretty confidently be like, oh yeah, I love music too much to like not have my ears anymore, so I would be blind. Um, but I'm sure if 
like I was actually presented with that question, they were like, no, you will be one of these things. I'd probably think about it a little harder um, because it would probably be a lot more difficult to not have your sight. Uh, you would need to rely on, on more people for things. Being blind and reliant on the help of people around him probably humbled Saul in a way that nothing else could have. And I'm sure God knew what he was doing when he sort of brought this upon Saul. He knew what Saul needed in that moment. And there's other factors there as well. I'm sure he had time to contemplate other things, what the Lord had spoken to him. And um, this is just a significant part of, of how Saul is changing in the midst of this hardship, this sudden blindness. And what we're seeing happen with Saul is something similar that happens in a forest fire. And allow me to explain. So forest fires, you might think at first glance, are probably the most destructive thing a forest could ever experience. Um, and in the moment, they certainly are. I mean, it is devastating. I know a few years back we had all like the crazy fires that were going all along the coast and just smoke in the sky. It's pretty scary stuff. But what happens in a forest fire that you usually don't see is that all the underbrush gets cleared out. The uh, branches that were obscuring the sunlight in the sky get burned enough so that it allows more sunlight in. And the ash and detritus from the forest fire fertilizes the ground. And so after a forest fire happens, the areas where they affected uh, usually experience exponential increases in growth after the forest fire has, has finished, which is a beautiful thing, right? There's so much destruction that leads to just this beautiful bursting out of, of life and growth. And it's so similar with what happens when we struggle and go through hardships. Those seeds are being planted. Those things are being changed in us that allow for more growth. In much the same way, I think, you know, my marriage would not have been the same that would certainly not have been as good as it is today if we hadn't had such a rough first year. Everybody always says like, oh, the first year of marriage is the roughest or one of the roughest. And, and this was certainly true for Heather and I. It was a really difficult year. We didn't communicate very well. Like I look back on that. I'm like, I didn't even know what communicate. I couldn't have even defined the Webster's definition of communicate. I was so bad at it. But we learned things about each other, about ourselves. Our hearts shifted in ways during that first year because it was so difficult. And some of those things that we learned are serving us still so well now that we're further down the road. And it has shaped the way that, that our marriage is today because we went through those hardships. If you think about it, the struggle that you or I are facing today could be the thing that God is using the most in your life right now. The thing that you or I face today could be what God's using the most in our lives right now. And it's just harder for us to see it because we're in the midst of the ashes. Saul's had time to struggle now, and he's been through this period of hardship. Now he can see again. Ananias goes to him, and he's filled with the Holy Spirit. And in that struggle, he changes, right? And he does a complete 180. And exactly what God, I'm sure, was delighting and waiting for happened. He regains his strength, Saul does, and he immediately starts preaching Jesus with the same, if not more, zeal than he was hunting Christians just probably a few weeks before. And so his zeal for Jesus kicked in, and he's firing on all cylinders, and just imagine the power in his testimony. It's like, this guy was the Darth Vader of hunting Christians. There's a second Star Wars reference. I did it. Um, this guy was like the 
the biggest, baddest Christian hunter, and now he's one of the, the people who is most passionately preaching Jesus' name. It's an incredible testimony. And naturally, the other disciples and the apostles are a little weary of him for a, a bit of time, but they're convinced of his authenticity, and they, they welcome him into the gang, into the church. And uh, part of this is Barnabas, another uh, one of the leaders in the church, went to the um, the apostles and advocated for Saul and said, no, he's, uh, he's changed. This testimony is truth. Um, I've seen it. We can trust him. This is real. <clears throat> that avocation helped. So they welcomed him in. And I'm sure, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm sure Saul still felt a little bit like an outsider. Um, but the Jewish religious leaders certainly didn't count him as an outsider. They were like, red alert, press all the buttons. This is bad. Um, they're, they wasted no time trying to kill Saul. So they're like, okay, he's gone rogue, he's gone AWOL. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Christian hunting tactics at all, but I'll tell you who sure was Saul. Uh, he knew every trick in the book. If you've ever seen the Bourne trilogy of movies, uh, it is a startlingly accurate comparison. Uh, Jason Bourne is this sort of like assassin, he's the best of the best, and he goes rogue AWOL, and they send all the other assassins to go try and get him, and he, they can't. They just can't. He's the best of the best. That's what Saul is. He's the best of the best. And so they're trying to hunt him down, and they're like, well, let's send in, I guess, the B team to go take him out, and it doesn't work. Uh, he evaded these attempts at capture. In fact, verse 23 of Acts chapter 9 says this, after many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him, Saul. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. This is some Mission Impossible level stuff that, that Saul's got going on right now. He knows every trick in the book. There's not a trap or ambush that these religious leaders can pull that Saul hasn't probably mastered and done a hundred times himself. So their efforts amount to nothing. And he continues preaching and teaching Jesus, and he is just wowing people and bringing people to the faith with his, his zeal and his passion. Verse 31 of Acts chapter 9 gives us that moment that we talked about in the hero's journey, it gives us sort of a picture of that reward, as it were. Um, and we read in verse 31, it says, then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened. Living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. This verse says, hey, all that stuff that was happening, all of this crazy, the crazy things we've been reading about for seven, eight chapters now, this is all amounting to this beautiful moment where now the church is experiencing a peace and a growth that they wouldn't have experienced otherwise. They've been scattered out. The church is growing now in a wider area. And in the midst of that persecution, God was working faithfully in them. So as we go into the home stretch this morning, I want to share two simple things that we can do when maybe we're in the midst of a struggle. Maybe you're in the midst of something right now. Maybe you're in the midst of some sort of struggle, trial, you've got some baggage, whatever it is. Maybe you're in the midst of something right now. Here's two things that we can do to stand firm and receive what God has for us in that. And the first is to let your heart be softened. 
uh, I think a lot of times our first reaction when we experience hardship is to, to harden our heart, to become bitter and closed off. Um, I think about when I was a kid, probably my reaction if I dropped my ice cream would be immediately to notice my sister's ice cream sitting high and mighty on its cone and become bitter that she has ice cream and I don't, right? It's like, I don't, my, my first instinct would be that rather than to try to seek out all the kids who've lost their ice cream and started like a support group. Um, but your first instinct sometimes is to close yourself off, to, to internalize, to withdraw, and to become bitter about that struggle. It's so easy to become bitter about our struggles. We think, whether we think it's not fair, whether we think it's something that, that shouldn't have happened, whether it's something that we just don't feel equipped to deal with, that bitterness can take center stage. God would instead teach us to allow our hearts to be broken and softened for those who are also struggling. Saul exemplifies this later in Acts 13. Um, he and Barnabas, and this is the same Barnabas that is sort of advocated for him. So Saul, who's now called Paul, and Barnabas go on their first missionary journey. And uh, they leave for uh, Cyprus, and they encounter a sorcerer there named Alemus. And Alemus was opposing them at every turn. He was opposing their teaching. He was actively speaking out against Jesus. He was attempting to hold on to what limited power and influence that he had right? Because his power and influence wasn't derived from anything other than trickery and sorcery and these things that he was just desperately trying to maintain himself. So he is opposing them and opposing their teaching so they confront him. And Paul uh, speaks out against him in truth. And he says this in verse 10, he says, you are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Seems harsh, but truthful, right? He's speaking truth to Elimus in this moment. Notice that Paul does not condemn him in this moment. He does not speak in absolute. He doesn't say, you will never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord and, and condemn him so. He says, poses that as a question. He says, will you Never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord. He extends a hand. He offers Elimus another way. He says, look, there is a, there's another way to do this. He doesn't condemn him. He knows that Elimus is lost, just like he once was, right? These are pretty fresh memories for Paul, and his heart's broken for him. And what he does next is probably the kindest thing he could think to do, because it's something that God did for him. In verse 11, Paul continues and he says, Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You are going to be blind for a time, not even able to see the light of the sun. And now we don't know for sure what role being blind played in Paul's conversion, right? But it had to have been significant enough that he said, Look, this helped me. This being subject to this caused me to change, to be humbled, and to grow. And he says, so you know what? I'm going to try it with Lemus. I'm just going to, my heart's broken. I know he's lost. I was lost. Boom. You're going to be blind for a time. He doesn't blind him permanently. Blinds him for a time. Paul displays a heart that was softened for the lost. And it's God's desire that our hearts be softened by our experiences as well. The second thing we can do is trust in your father. Um, yeah, I joked a lot about the, 
the character traits and building character, but when things really got tough for us as a family, as, as things tend to do for anyone, um, when we went through like a rough patch as a family, I always knew that my dad was there, right? I, I, I always trusted that my dad either had a plan or I just knew that he'd be there for us in the middle of it. He would take care of us. Uh, I never questioned that growing up. And, you know, part of it was just because, like, like, oh, well, my dad could do anything, especially when I was younger. Now that he's getting older and I'm older, it's like, all right, dad, you're crazy. But, um, <laughs> but when you're a kid, it's like, man, I trusted him so much. And how much more then should we trust that our Father God, who delights in our joy, will carry us through and make good on his promises to us? If you find it hard to maintain that trust, seek reminders of his faithfulness. That's why I said this sermon is, I felt like God was putting on my heart a, a reminder. As I grow in my faith, I find more and more that the things that speak the most to me when God is speaking the clearest, most clearly to me are when I'm being reminded of something. Seek those reminders in scripture. The same verse you've read maybe a hundred times might jump out and, and reach your heart in a place that you need it, right? Uh, seek him in prayer. Those few minutes a day of just going to God, especially if you've got something that you're wrestling with, saying, God, man, I don't, I don't know what this is. I don't know how to beat this. I don't know how to get through this. Just lay it on him. Man, he will provide you with peace and comfort in those moments if you, if you trust in him and you take that to him. Um, he, will, he will be faithful to meet you in those moments. Trust in your Father. We aren't meant to overcome these things on our own, right? We're not meant to get through these struggles with our own power. We're meant to run to a Savior who can and has overcome death for us because he loves us. So trust in Jesus. Trust in that Savior. Uh, on the sloping hills of Paso Roble in uh, California sits the LaVenture Vineyard. I think we have a nice picture there. And the interesting thing about this vineyard is that it is, it's different from most other vineyards where they are sort of uh, planted in these lush valleys. At first glance, it would look like the owners of this vineyard were just really bad. They did not do their research. They're like, all right, this looks like a good area to plant a vineyard. It's kind of rocky. Uh, there's very, a lot of hills. Not really the most uh, comforting environment for these vines to grow. But something interesting happened, and these vines that grow in the LaVenture Vineyard have to grow through this rocky limestone-ridden soil, and they have to grow sort of up these hills. And in the process of doing so, the grapes turn out different than the grapes that are on Easy Street down in the valley. Um, the wines that are made with these grapes are said to have more character, more flavor, and they command a, a much higher value than the grapes that are grown in the, the normal valley. Something different happens as these vines grow through these, the rocky terrain. This morning, in, in the same way, right, something happens in us when we are able to grow through, with the help of our Father, when we're able to grow through that rocky terrain that we're in. It happens in the church. It happens in us individually. So this morning, trust in your Father. He is in the business of bringing beauty for ashes. 
soften your hearts and trust in him. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? And maybe you've got something that's jumping to your mind right now. Maybe, um, you know, some struggle that comes to the forefront. And if you do, uh, God would just invite you this morning to give it to him, to lay it at his feet, to cry out to him, and to lean into his grace, his love, and his faithfulness. Lord, it's our prayer this morning that our hearts would be softened. God, as, as we struggle, that, that struggle will become internalized. God, is something that, that we recognize you are carrying us through, that you are going to bring something beautiful from. God, and help us to go from here with hearts that are soft. Help us to trust in you. Help us to lean in to your faithfulness, to lean into your word, to look for those reminders, God. So look back at the times when you've been faithful before for us, for others. Lord, help us to internalize those reminders. God, help us to look forward and trust that you will bring something beautiful from it. Lord, we love you. We thank you, Jesus, for your sacrifice for us, for everything that you've done for us. We love you, and in your mighty name we pray, amen. Would you stand with me? I do not have a fancy benediction this morning, and for that I'm sorry, but what I do have is a very appropriate picnic benediction. Um, so the benediction is simple, it's this. Go with Jesus and put on your picnic face. Have a great morning. Thank you so much for coming. Hopefully see you at the picnic.